Hello and welcome to Let Us Learn More, a podcast focused on produce industry education. As you know, we at the Packer put on a number of events each year and we wanted to preserve all the great information that comes from those educational sessions. This season of the podcast is focused on our Sustainable Produce Summit. So without further ado, enjoy the session. My name is Jess Vieira. I'm the Director of Sustainability at Appeal. And I want to start us off by putting what we're about to talk about into context. By 2050, we know the world will need about 56% more food. And today, already, a healthy diet is unaffordable for at least 3 billion people globally, and 9 in 10 Americans are not eating the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables. At the same time, almost 50% of fresh produce we grow ends up as waste. At Appeal, um, we're on a mission to reduce waste and create abundance for all. By working with nature instead of against it, Appeal's plant-derived coating can extend the shelf life of fresh produce without the need for plastic packaging. Fresh produce with Appeal lasts up to twice as long, which helps to reduce food waste and increase access for those who need it most. We're very lucky at Appeal to work closely with Ryan to ensure we can achieve our mission and she's lent her legal and strategic expertise to many global organizations, including the Partnership for a Healthier America. Currently, Ryan serves as the chairperson of Feeding Change at the Milken Institute and CEO of Boardwalk Capital. I'm very proud to introduce Ryan Shedrick Wilson as she discusses the critical role that the fresh produce industry plays in national food security and health outcomes for vulnerable communities. Thank you, Jess. That was a kind intro. So hello, everybody. Um, I'm glad to be here. And I guess I'll just start off by saying 2020. How's this year going for you? Um, I know so far it's been a real doozy. We've got a deadly virus and national reckoning around race and equity, natural disasters, divisive politics, a really ugly presidential election. So why should we take the time to talk about sustainable produce? Does it really matter right now, given all that's going on? And is what we do meaningful? And I am here to say, heck yes. That's why I was really pleased and honored to be asked to deliver this keynote, um, because I think the work of the produce industry is among the most important on the globe. In fact, I'd argue that it's key to solving a lot of the crises that plague us, whether it's health or environmental or social or geopolitical. Um, I imagine some of you might be saying, really, you're linking produce to global health crises and economic concerns and our environmental crisis and race and politics and national security. Yep, I really am. And hyperbole, it's really not. Uh, for years, I've said that the produce industry is an unsung hero and can help address so many of our global crises. I think the industry is unsung, underfunded and underappreciated. And I want to tell you why. And I'll start with this. The American people are sick. And I'm not talking about COVID-19. I'm referring to the pandemic that's been simmering for decades. It's mentioned on occasion, but addressed rarely, and at least not in any meaningful way. Today in the U.S., 75% of adults, so it's three out of four of us, are overweight or suffering from obesity. Nearly half of our adult population, that's 114 million Americans, suffer from diabetes or prediabetes. 
And according to the American Heart Association report last year, 121 million, 121 million adults, uh, that's more than half of the adult population, I'm doing math in real time in my head, um, have some form of cardiovascular disease. So what that means is we have more sick Americans than healthy. I mean, I think that that really bears repeating. We are more sick than healthy. Why is that? Why do we have these issues? Why did why do diseases like obesity and diabetes and heart disease, as well as some cancers, what do they all have in common? And the truth is they're they're diet related. And now diet related chronic disease has outpaced smoking, tobacco as a leading cause of death, which is incredible when you think about how we grew up and what we were taught. All of us had anti-smoking education at some point, but very few of us get healthy food education. Dari Mosafarian and his team at Tufts University last year estimated that poor diet kills about 530,000 Americans annually. That's 1,500 of us a day. So I'm not here to depress you, although the numbers are depressing and staggering really, but there's good news. And that's if, if so much disease is caused by diet, then dietary changes should help us prevent disease. But what should we be eating? Every week, it feels like headlines say, you know, eat this, not that. Oh, wait, wait, not this, maybe that. It's confusing. And in fact, uh, it's what I call infobesity, that paralysis, that paralyzing amount of conflicting information that we all get. But while nutrition science continues to evolve and emerge and debate itself, one, there's been this one consistent, and it's consistent across nearly all recommended healthy diets, and that's fruits and vegetables. We need them for their macronutrients, their micronutrients, their vitamins, their minerals, their fiber, their antioxidants. They fuel our healthy gut microbiome, um, and, and they've even been linked to better mental health. And the thing is, and this is what's so weird for me, um, we know this. Like, really, we've been told since the time we were little by our grandmas, eat your veggies. We've had government campaigns and industry marketing campaigns telling us to consume five a day or eat the rainbow. Yet, our fruit and vegetable consumption statistics just don't budge. In the U.S., as Jess mentioned, uh, just one in 10 adults are eating the recommended daily intake of fruits and vegetables. And the World Health Organization, the WHO, has estimated that 3.9 million deaths worldwide in 2017 were attributed to inadequate fruit and vegetable consumption. Why is this? And why aren't we doing more? I mean, if the WHO statistics are correct, then four times as many people died from inadequate fruit and vegetable consumption in 2017 as have died globally from COVID-19 this year, four times. So why aren't we doing more? I talk a lot about this issue and, you know, as dire as the health outcomes are, there are just a lot of people who are unmoved by it. So I think it's important that for those for whom health consequences are not persuasive, perhaps we talk about other issues that might be. So if you don't care about health, maybe you care about money. Let's talk about the economic impact of our diets. Cardiovascular disease costs the US $351 billion annually. That's in direct healthcare costs and in lost productivity. Diabetes costs us $327 billion annually. And according to the Milken Institute research report on obesity, 
the total economic cost of obesity is estimated at 100 or 1.72 trillion per year. So that's 351 billion, 327 billion, and 1.72 trillion with a T per year. That's, that's more than 9% of our gross domestic product. So for anyone who cares about the economy or reducing the costs of running a business or reducing healthcare costs nationally or closing our deficit, they should also care about the quality of the food we eat. But for those who don't pay much heed to the economy but are deeply concerned about equity, food is also your issue. As the folks at this gathering and in this audience likely well know, we have gross disparities in food access and in fruit and vegetable intake. Many times those disparities are even in the same city. And you know, many public health officials and different organizations have started to say the greatest predictor of our outcomes in life is not so much our genetic code, but our zip code. We spent billions of dollars researching the human genome, under, trying to understand our DNA and its impact. Um, so I'd ask as a nation, are we spending nearly enough to understand the impact of our zip code? If you take Washington DC, for example, which is where I live, it has one of the most dramatic life expectancy differences across two zip codes in the same city. A resident in Northwest DC, where the Georgetown neighborhood is, has a life expectancy of 94 years. A resident in DC's Southeast neighborhood of Anacostia, on the other hand, has a life expectancy of 67 years. That's a 27 year difference in the same city. Georgetown, of course, is a wealthy, predominantly white neighborhood with plenty of healthy food options. And Anacostia is a mostly black neighborhood and it happens to be a food desert. The term food desert, of course, refers to those geographic areas where people have limited access to healthy food. And these disparities are true in cities and towns across the country. So I think it's, it's really relevant today when there's a lot of talk in our national dialogue about equity and criminal justice and in education and in employment, that we also consider that we'll never really have equity until we ensure that all people have access to the foundation for a healthy life and that's nourishing food. Of course, in addition to equity and social justice, if you care about the environment and the ability of future generations to live on this planet, then you sure as heck should care about a healthy food system. Many scientific studies have concluded that diets rich in fruits and vegetables, plant-based foods, and that it go lighter on animal-based foods. And I won't go into that here because I know it can get controversial, but there's science to show that it will result in an improved health and less strain on the environment. And just mentioned some of the statistics at the top of this um, keynote address. You know, up to 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions today are attributed to agriculture, but more than half of that is attributed to livestock production. And as Jeff said, Jess said, by 2050, the world's population will be around 9 billion people, and that's going to require something like 60% more food than we grow today. But global project projections are showing that we only have room for about 2% more land to grow. So we need to grow food in a manner that is efficient and protects the soil and our land instead of in a manner that depletes it. And I'll just mention the Eat Lancet report last year that really, it, it was a call to action to transform human diets and 
in food production systems by 2050, saying it was required in order to prevent irreversible damage. I know I don't really need to say much more about the environment and sustainability piece here and for this audience, given all the experts throughout the conference that are going to address it. So I'll move on, but I'll just say that if environmental concerns, economic concerns, health concerns, or equity concerns have not yet persuaded us as a nation to do better, to create a healthier food system, maybe this last issue will. And that's national security. Our diets have actually become a major national security concern. So back in the 1940s, it was actually a concern for national security that led Congress to create some of the national nutrition programs that we still have today, programs like the National School Lunch Program. At the time, though, the concern was that too many Americans were undernourished. They simply weren't getting enough nutrition, enough calories. And so an estimated 40% of the young men that tried to enlist in the armed forces were turned away because of malnutrition or being underweight. Today, we have the inverse situation. Young recruits are routinely turned away and deemed unfit to fight due to malnutrition and being overweight. In 2018, a group of retired admirals and generals came together for the report called Mission Readiness, which some of you may have seen, but it concluded that 71% of young people do not qualify for military service. It's really sad when you consider what that means for and what, what that situation is for our nation's youth. But it's scary when you consider the situation for our country. And really what we're experiencing now is a, a byproduct of our own success, our own successful innovation as a nation. You know, since the 1940s and there was this national effort to improve our diets, the U.S. has really led the world in successfully building a a food supply that's convenient and calorie dense and full of shelf-stable foods. But as the consumption of these foods have risen, the consumption of fruits and vegetables have declined. And as we've exported our food and our food culture to other nations, they've begun to experience similar fates. I think we can look to China as an example. So back in the 1980s, China was predicted to have a diabetes rate around 1% of the population. It was really low. Now diabetes rates are somewhere between 10 and 20%, depending on which estimates you look at. Here's a fun fact that I'm not saying is causation, but maybe correlation or just, I'll just, I'll just leave it at fun fact for, <laughs> so we don't get too much negative feedback. But in 1987, the first KFC arrived in China. By 2017, there were 5,600 KFCs in 1,200 cities across China. So I'm not saying KFC is to blame for the diabetes rates skyrocketing in China, but as Chinese prosperity has risen and Western food has become more accessible and more commonplace for more people, diet-related chronic disease has certainly skyrocketed. And that's because what we eat matters. Big time. Um, Yet, I think we suffer from what I call the great disconnect. By and large, we feel just such a disconnect between what we eat and how we feel and perform. I think that's both personally and, and as a society. There's just a bit of cognitive dissonance going on. I remember about five years ago, I was at the White House for this event, and there was a professional basket player talking, and he's talking about his um, teammates in the NBA driving all these new fancy cars. 
And he was saying how his buddies would never in a million years consider putting regular gas in their sports cars. Of course, you know, they were using premium fuel to, to, to preserve the performance of their cars. And he noted that those same professional athletes were not making that connection to the food they were using to fuel their own bodies, their, their own performance machines. And, and I really think part of this great disconnect, as I call it, is that the effects for most dietary most of our dietary choices just aren't felt immediately. The effects are longer term and that the resulting outcomes are multifactorial. But I think we should ask ourselves, you know, what if each time we ate junk food, we felt an immediate heart pain? What if each time we supersized our order of burgers and soda, we immediately felt our waist expand by two inches? What if we like really risked popping a button each time we made a dietary decision? I think that would surely get our attention and surely our behavior would change. So enter the COVID-19 wake up call. Our chronic disease issue in the US came into full view during this COVID-19 pandemic. For those with pre-existing chronic conditions, COVID-19 has been it's been deadly and it's had a deadly disproportionate impact. While only 4% of the global population lives in the United States, as of August, we've had nearly a quarter of the fatalities. So yes, there are many reasons for this, but having such a sick population to begin with has most certainly been a contributing factor. Those health consequences that really seem down the road for so many of us so far off are now here and immediate. And whereas maybe we've had this disconnect between what we know and what we do, and I know I do too, um, more of us are now focused on healthy diets to fuel a strong immune system because now it's not just a nice to have down the road. It's a, it's a must have for my own protection right now. So I think if there are any uh, silver linings to be found in our national COVID experience, perhaps this is one. Maybe COVID-19 will be our wake-up call, and I sure hope that we don't hit the snooze button. Um, This may be the kick in the pants that we need to get it together and address our food system to ensure that we're supporting those who grow and sell the healthiest foods and that we're getting those foods to all people, particularly those who need it the most. Um, And we have to note that COVID has really led to food insecurity rates in this nation that we haven't seen for for most of us in our lifetimes. We've seen the startling photos of neighbors lined up around the block for food banks and schools. Um, And I'm not sure I'll ever forget the photo, that aerial photo in April from San Antonio that captured 10,000, 10,000 cars waiting in line at a food bank. So since April, I've had the honor of sitting on this weekly task force call with the leading anti-hunger organizations in this country, Feeding America, Share Strength, World Central Kitchen, and others. And I've been really moved by the tireless work of these organizations and their volunteers and how they've kept us fed during this time. Uh, But I've got to say, I've also been really frustrated because there's just been so much talk about food security, getting calories from point A to point B. But what we need to talk about is nutrition security prioritizing getting the healthiest food to the people who need it most. 
because nutrition security would mean a deeper investment and support of the produce industry. We have to do that if we're going to address chronic disease and our skyrocketing healthcare costs, um, if we're going to address climate concerns, if we're going to ensure equity and social justice, and if we're going to strengthen our national security, we have to improve our diets. And if we're going to improve our diets, that means eating more fruits and vegetables. So I think it's time to stop putting Band-Aids on our problems and to just invest in real solutions. And I don't think the industry needs to do this alone. I think it's time for the nation to come together and support this industry and to recognize the importance of its work. And really, it's time for new policies. There are a lot of policy ideas floating around these days, but perhaps Medicare and Medicaid and private insurers should start reimbursing for the purchase of healthy foods. If we know that certain foods have just as much, if not more, of an impact on the prevention of a disease, then why are we not covering them like we do drugs? Perhaps doctors should start to write more produce prescriptions alongside other prescriptions. We've, we've seen sex, uh, successful pilot programs in many parts of the country with tremendous results with these produce prescription programs. Perhaps medical schools need to update their training so that doctors are educated on the importance of nutrition. Nutrition, as most of us know, is sadly omitted from most medical school curricula. And I think while there have been a lot of public calls for taxes on junk food, what about subsidies or tax incentives for health-promoting foods and those who grow them and those who sell them? Perhaps we just need to seize this moment of public awareness and all of the social media platforms out there to get mobilized. And I think maybe my biggest hope, you know, is that perhaps in the midst of all the negativity and the divisive political discourse that we use this moment to find unity. I mean, we all eat, damn it. Like it's the one thing we all have in common. And food's not my issue. It's not your issue. It's, it's our issue. It's, it's urban and rural, it's young and old, it's white and black, it's progressive and conservative. I really, I really think that food can be a unifying issue. Investment in healthy food and those who grow it would bring returns for each of us, our communities, our nation, and our planet. And I'm hopeful that we'll soon turn a corner and take action to get more fruits and vegetables to more people and that we'll rightfully recognize, I think, the superhero capes that should be on each one of you who work day in and day out to ensure that we have a safe, a safe and steady supply. So I guess I just want to conclude by saying that in these days when we're hyper-focused on the day-to-day, -day, you know, the just staying afloat, keeping employees employed, meeting logistical challenges, keeping ourselves and our families healthy, schooling our kids at home, and probably spending way more time with our spouses than we ever planned to. Um, I just wanted to deliver a reminder that your work matters. And I think it matters today. And it's crucial to the shaping of a better, healthier, more sustainable, and more equitable future for our country. That's it. Thanks, Jess. Ryan, thank you so much for such an insightful and inspiring talk. Um, I certainly learned a lot um, just listening to you now also. Um, I have a few questions, um, and I think there are even more that we're starting to see, but why don't I just get started? Sure. So the produce industry hasn't always been credited with being the most agile and innovative industry, 
but we've seen some really great examples of these attributes, especially in response to COVID. Could you highlight a couple examples that you've seen where produce suppliers or distributors um, have rapidly adopted new practices to respond to the changing needs of our communities with the shifts to in, in context of COVID? Uh, sure. Well, I'll share one example that I saw that I thought was quite moving. And this is back from those days when sort of news media was filled with those visuals of farmers plowing over fields. And then we would see those juxtaposed against the long lines at the food banks. And um, there's a small startup company that has a dehydration technology. And so one of the things that occurred to me is I, I, I'm aware of many producers that quickly flew into action trying to figure out how they could truck from this part of the country to this part of the country, um, different commodities. Um, but we all know that there, there was a lack of refrigerated trucks or lack of refrigerated storage. Um, and we needed to just buy time, right? We needed to buy time. And so I reached out to this, um, this company called Treasure 8, which has a dehydration technology. And I said, I know you're busy and I know you're launching your company and you have so many things going on, but right down the road from you, just a matter of miles, there are growers who are about to plow over fields of some of the most nutritious stuff. We're talking about berries and kale. And so they flew into action and started dehydrating kale and berries and then donating it through some of the hunger organizations that I mentioned. To me, that was this beautiful sort of bright spot um, and an example of, of strange bedfellows that it doesn't, it's not just going to be the big companies alone that need to solve these problems, small and big and nonprofits and for-profit companies working together to fly into action. I was really, I was really moved by that. So exciting. I mean, and really interesting in the treasure eight scenario, addressing both food waste and also making it easier to distribute the the nutritious food um, by using their dehydration technology. Are there other innovations that you're seeing today um, that, that are really giving you hope for getting more fruits and vegetables to people? Um, there are lots. Um, there are lots of initiatives that I think are fantastic. Like uh, a nonprofit based out of Texas called Brighter Bites that does great work, sort of filling backpacks and boxes full of vegetables for, for kids who might not have access to any food, much less fruits or vegetables. Um, but I'd say in the technological front, I have to, and you mentioned I'm an advisor to Appeal and you're here, but when I first met Appeal, I thought, yes, this is what we've needed. This is the magical fairy dust, <laughs> not what you call it, not the technical term that we need to simply buy time. Like I said before, um, answer to your first question, we need to buy more time and we need more people. You know, we have to address access and affordability. Um, we have to address taste preferences. There's a lot we have to deal with in the fruit and vegetable space. Um, but if we can buy time, we can solve a lot of that and we can bring costs down. And so I you know, I spoke to James, your CEO, sort of or in the early days of COVID here in the U.S., and I just wish that we had appeal at more farms right? and appeal treated produce in more stores. Something for the future. <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, really the intersection of the produce industry with so many of these issues and the interplays between the produce industry 
um, and potentially the healthcare system. Yeah. How do you view um, opportunities for us to better link the produce industry with the healthcare, with healthcare solution, um, the healthcare system to be part of a broader solution? Well, this um, this space, and some people will call it the food is medicine, you know, movement. I think is really exciting, and um, just an, in its nascency. And so there have been, I think, as I mentioned, some pilot programs around the country that have had tremendous results. For example, in, in D.C., there's a, a small nonprofit called D.C. Greens, and they partnered with a healthcare system, AmeriHealth, and giant food stores, a retailer. And they did this three-way partnership where patients would get prescriptions for produce that they could use at Giant, um, and they were seeing increased health outcomes for the patients. And I don't want to steal their thunder because I'm not sure they've released all of this. So this is early preliminary data um, and decreased costs for the healthcare insurer, which is incredible. That's what we need. And there've been similar types of findings in different small pilots around the country. I think Wholesome Wave has done this double up bucks um, program, which refers to the double up uh, value of SNAP dollars um, when used for fruits and vegetables um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. They're just, there's just such fantastic. Oh, I know a good one. Geisinger, which is a big health, um, uh, a health, um, care institution in Pennsylvania started something they call the fresh food pharmacy. So patients in the healthcare system could go to the pharmacy and they saw an 80% reduction of costs in treating patients with diabetes. Like that's astounding. And we need to get that this information and the stats from all these pilot programs into the hands of these healthcare insurers. So one thing I'm working on with the Milken Institute is launching a task force, a food is medicine task force. We're going to bring together the leaders in healthcare and the leaders um, from produce industry and other healthy food companies to start to, to recognize the urgency of this issue and to start to move on bigger solutions more quickly. Cannot wait to hear updates from that, as I'm sure many on the call are too, you know, especially when you think about what that could mean for the produce industry um, right. yeah, with all of the stakeholders here. I mean, this is a place where there's opportunity to do good and do well, right? That, that's, that's to me, I mean, I'm not going to say low-hanging fruit because that's a terrible pun on this call, but it's the no-brainer. Like it, it, it just, it sort of, it kills me. And so I'm very pleased. COVID-19 has been horrendous tragedy for this country, but I do try to find that optimism and like, maybe this is it. This is that wake up call. This is the proverbial like button popping off our pants and like hitting us in the face. Um, we've got to do something and maybe this is it. Absolutely. Although I guess with COVID, how many people are really wearing pants with buttons working from home, but, <laughs> but no, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned a couple of times food culture, you know, here in the U.S., how it's evolved in other places. Are you seeing a shift in that culture? Yeah. So um, in a previous role, I, I worked at Partnership for a Healthier America, as you mentioned. We worked with the White House and we really um, we had athletes and celebrities stepping up and wanting to to share wisdom around, you know, eating healthy and moving more. And what I have seen since the early days of Partnership for a Healthier America to now is what we were dealing with initially is celebrities would come and say, I'd love to go to the school with you. I'm like, yeah, but here are your endorsements. Hey, right? and like, 
what you're getting paid to endorse is not matching up with the messaging you're delivering to these kids. It is such a different world where now we are seeing notable, really prominent athletes and celebrities saying, I want to be a part of this. They're investing in companies um, early that they think have solutions to help move the dial on healthier food, um, really eschewing some of the bigger endorsement deals for some of the least healthy foods and putting their names um, and likeness and image between some of the most healthy. And often that means the paychecks are a lot smaller, but they're, they're getting in it. And I think that's a reflection. Sometimes celebrities are drivers of culture. I'm not sure. I think they're drivers, but they're also a reflection of consumer preferences shifting and probably a reflection of a real generational shift that we're about to feel. I mean, if you look at the dietary patterns among the generations in the United States, I think, um, Gen Z, right? And millennials and then Gen Z, I think they're about to hit us with um, some real forces that shift the marketplace for the better. Well, I think, you know, I, for one, I'm definitely looking forward to, to that, to see that shift and, and hopefully be part of it. That's cool. I have one final question for you. And this is one that we, we actually ask all imp- appeal and new employees to answer on their first day of work. Okay. Hopefully this audience will also um, be excited about this question. So if you were any fresh fruit or vegetable, what would you be and why? <laughs> what? <laughs> to put on the spot. Um, oh, that's such a, that's such a good one. Um, no, you're going to stump me at the end with a silly question like this. I mean, there are days I feel like different ones, right? Like an avocado some days, like real tough and ugly on the outside, but in the inside, there's, there's a lot of goodness. So it depends. That's usually with my kids around. Um, but I guess given the sort of multi-faceted nature of what I work on now, I work with on the philanthropic side, I work with nonprofits, I work with big companies, I work with small companies, I work with investors, and maybe I'm like a strawberry. So there's lots of seeds that I'm trying to like drop everywhere. Great. Well, thank you for humoring me with that one. Um, hopefully everyone else is now reflecting on what they would be. <laughs> but I want to thank you, Ryan, for spending time with us this morning. Yeah. I learned a lot. I'm sure others on the call did too. And I'm really excited um, about a lot of the new opportunities that you see and some of the momentum that you're describing. So with that, I want to thank also everyone for joining us for this call and and hope that you enjoy the the final day of the Sustainable Produce Summit. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to this great content from our Sustainable Produce Summit. We hope to see you at our next event. Remember, we've got West Coast Produce Expo, the Global Organic Produce Expo, and the Sustainable Produce Summit all as part of the roster. And of course, you can always read our reporting on thepacker.com and producemarketguide.com along with our weekly newspapers and magazines every other month. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Let Us Learn More podcast.